from Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Guardian newspaper in the UK mounts a full court press to report the urgency and need for action on global warming, a story journalism hasn't told well. Journalism, I think of it as a rear view mirror, that journalism works well with things that have happened that you can describe. It works less well with things that might happen or things that move very slowly. Also, an Earth Day remembrance of scientist Theo Colburn, a pioneer who raised the alarm about endocrine-disrupting chemicals. I was extremely privileged to work with someone like Theo. I also really looked up to her for doing work in a field that was so controversial. She really took a stand for the sake of planet Earth and human health. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Alan Rusbridger has been the chief editor of the respected UK paper The Guardian since 1995. And last December, as he considered his retirement at the end of 2015, he had a chance encounter with Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben, as you may have heard in our broadcast last week, is a writer who has also become a leading activist confronting society about climate change and the fossil fuel industry. In the 20 years that Alan Rusbridger has led The Guardian, the paper has established an impressive reputation for environmental coverage. But that meeting inspired Alan to dedicate his remaining time as top editor to covering and campaigning for the climate. So, along with reporting on climate change, The Guardian is sponsoring a petition that calls on two of the world's richest foundations, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust, to divest their holdings in fossil fuels. And that petition already has over 100,000 signatures. Alan joins us now on the line from London. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm pleased to be here. So, to start with, I understand that Bill McKibben is the one that maybe sparked the idea to devote your final year as editor to covering climate change. How did that happen? Well, we both won an award in Sweden at the end of last year, and over lunch I was talking to him about his passion, which is the environment, and I said that I felt we'd never really sort of quite cut through. We've got five environment correspondents, so it's not like we hadn't done justice to the subject, but I thought we were victim to the fact that people switch off, I think. When they read about the environment, it seems too dismal, too complicated. There's nothing they can do about it. And Bill told me about his campaign and the fact that the divestment movement in his mind was snowballing, was having the kind of cut through that traditional journalism wasn't happening. And that gave me the idea of combining the reporting with the campaigning to try and jolt people out of the complacency that I think they feel. Why do you think the journalists have struggled to tell the climate change story? Well, I've been thinking about that, and I think journalism, I think of it as a rear-view mirror, that journalism works well with things that have happened that you can describe. It works less well with things that might happen or things that move very slowly. So it's very difficult to describe the gentle melting of an iceberg or the change in the atmosphere. It's very difficult to definitely ascribe climate events, hurricanes and tornadoes and rains to climate change. So 
journalism just struggles to describe what's going on. And because nothing very dramatic happens from day to day, it slips off the front pages. I think readers have stopped reading about it because it feels, in a way, too frightening. I think, you know, psychologists have written entire books about this. And so somehow this story, which I think of as probably the most important story on Earth, is not being told by journalists. I have to tell you that on a personal level, more than 20 years ago, I came to the conclusion that human-induced climate change is the most important story of the day. Started this program, Living on Earth, on public radio in the States, and have been telling the story. And I have to say, it's very hard to keep the enthusiasm going on this story. How do you plan to tell this story differently to engage people? Well, I've been editing for about 20 years, and I've been quite reluctant to do big campaigns because I think campaigns only really work, to my mind, where you've got something about which there's no reasonable doubt. And there are not many stories which fall into that category. And I think where there is reasonable doubt, it's better to do reporting because then you can report all sides of the argument. With climate change, I think most people, most reasonable people, accept that the science is pretty settled. There's something like a nine-to-one majority for scientists who think the same about the nature of the risk and its causes. And so I think where you've got that, I don't think there's any great obligation to bend over backwards to be balanced. And having decided that, then I thought, let's turn this into a campaign that involves reporting, rather than simply reporting, which, you know, for one reason or another, isn't cutting through in the way that it has to. This is an urgent story. We can't afford to spend the next few years waiting for people to wake up to its seriousness. Now, what was the reaction of your colleagues there at The Guardian when you told them about your idea that you were going to spend these last few months of your leadership of the paper in this campaign on the climate? I can't remember ever having such universal enthusiasm. What I did over Christmas was to email a large number of people, not actually just in editorial, but across the organization to say, look, we were thinking of doing this and who wanted to be involved. And about 45 people turned up to the first meeting. And I think what you realize is that it's not that people aren't interested. It's just that they can't find the vehicle to engage. And so once you say, look, we're going to do this and we want to harness the abilities of as many people as possible, there's tremendous enthusiasm because, you know, we're all people as well as reporters and workers here. We've all got young relatives or children or grandchildren. People are, on some level, deeply engaged in this existential threat that could put all that in jeopardy. So actually, there's been a fantastic internal and external response to what we're doing. Now, as I understand it, The Guardian is launching what you're calling the Keep It in the Ground campaign. Tell me about it. Well, I think there's one very simple way of looking at this, and this is Bill McKibben's way of framing it, which is if you concentrate just on three facts. One is that we have to stay within two degrees of warming. And I think there's universal consensus about that, even amongst people who disagree about how to do that. Civilization as we know it will begin to become very difficult to maintain above two degrees. The second fact is the amount of fossil fuels that people own and is in the ground. And the third fact is the amount of 
fossil fuels that can safely be burnt to stay within two degrees. The amount of known reserves of fossil fuels is vastly greater, about four or five times greater, than the amount that can be safely burnt. And so therefore, it is not safe to dig up all the oil and the gas and the coal that we know about. And once you agree on that, then you look at the companies and you say, well, these companies cannot be valued right. They're putting all this stuff in their books. In fact, they're searching for more, and yet they're never going to be allowed to use it for the sake of the species. And therefore, it has to be kept in the ground. Well, there's one rather pressing factor, though. If you think of the end of slavery, perhaps as an analogy to the campaign that you're about, the value of a slave, for example, here in the United States, back in the day was equivalent to, say, a luxury car. If you tell these companies that they have to keep it in the ground, they have billions upon billions of dollars predicated on that. They're not going to go willingly, are they? No, they're not. And therefore, you look at the levers that are going to change that. And there are two levers, either some form of governmental regulation or rationing or pricing. And the second is the financial levers of people realizing that this is, in a very real sense, a carbon bubble. These are assets that are going to be stranded. And that if you're a wise financial manager, you want to get out of that before that bubble bursts. There's not much a newspaper can do about the first bit. It, you know, of course, we can lobby governments to to bring in the regulations and the limits. We looked to Paris for that to happen in December, but we thought that that's not going to be a very engaging thing for readers. That, that feels like political wonkery. But the idea of trying to go for divestment, of trying to persuade people of the risk to their investments and for them either on moral grounds or probably more likely on pure financial self-interest grounds to get their money out of fossil fuels before that bubble bursts. And again, we're not naive enough to think that if we rang up Shell or BP or Exxon and suggested that they get the stuff in the ground, that that was going to have much effect. But I think there are organizations like the Gates Foundation, like the Wellcome Trust in Britain, which are devoted to science and medicine, who are progressive in every way in terms of the good that they do to humanity and just say, look, don't you think that you ought to be taking the lead in terms of not having money in these things, which we know cause tremendous damage to the planet and to health. And it's kind of interesting that when you realize that your own portfolio at The Guardian had plenty of fossil fuel holdings. So what did you decide to do about that? We were aware that the moment we started writing this, people would point the finger back at us. Um, the Guardian is a company that is run by a trust. It's a not-for-profit company. It's the simplest way of thinking about it. And we have about a billion dollars invested. And we realized people would say, well, it's all very well to wag your fingers at others, but what are you going to do yourselves? And I went to the GMG board, the Guardian Media Group board, and said, look, this is an issue. You don't have to be bound by the Guardian's reporting and campaigning. But on the other hand, people are going to draw attention to what you do. And actually, the board went away and thought about it. And board is very hard-nosed business people, so they weren't making a woolly-minded choice. But they, I think they hadn't concentrated on the issue before. And the moment they did, they realized the sense in divesting. And they came out last week 
and said they would be divesting over a period of two to five years from all fossil fuels. So that was a tremendously encouraging start. I think that's the biggest fund so far that has divested. How will you measure the success of this campaign? You've decided that it's appropriate now to begin advocating a particular position rather than just reporting on the news. It makes you a campaigning as well as a news organization. How will you measure the success of this decision and this campaign? Well, to some extent, I think we've succeeded in galvanizing an awful lot of people to sign. I think that when I last looked, the petition had been signed by 170,000 people. The people who are running the Paris talks have been in touch, and they say this is a fantastically helpful thing in terms of getting this on the radar of politicians and the people who are going to be negotiating those talks. I think the fact that the Guardian Media Group has divested will make fund managers sit up and realize that there is an issue here they need to concentrate on. So I think we've had a quite remarkable success already. And obviously, we're going to keep up our reporting, our campaigning, and I expect us to draw attention in a very stark way to the contradiction between these, as I say, admirable foundations, Gates and Welcome, who do so much good, but I think really shouldn't be having their money in things that have the potential to do uh, uh, unimaginable harm. Looking again, say, at the analogy of ending slavery, the kind of uh, political and social movement that had huge economic implications, in the United States, that wound up in a civil war, a really bloody war. In the UK, (laughs) you folks divested of slaves in fits and starts, but there was not the kind of conflict. What's the difference there, and how might that lesson be applied today? Well, I don't know whether this is so much Britain versus the US. This is probably the biggest imaginable global threat, and I think crosses all cultural, uh, national, political boundaries. And it's only going to be solved by an international will. You've made the analogy with slavery. Other people are making the analogy with tobacco or with apartheid South Africa. I think those are the kind of sort of moral comparisons. But I think in the end, whether or not there is immediate political will, I think this thing will be determined by people who realize that those three figures that we talked about earlier have a kind of logic of their own. And nobody wants to be the person holding on to the pass the parcel parcel at the moment when the bubble bursts. So I would anticipate that the more you can get this into the heads of the people who have their money there. And it's not like these assets have been performing particularly well over the last 10 years anyway. There will be a flight from fossil fuels. And once you get to that tipping point, then the whole economics of renewables versus fossil fuels changes. And I think things could begin to change quite quickly. Alan Rusbridger is editor of The Guardian. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Many scientists believe global warming is the greatest threat facing the planet, but it's hardly the only threat in our environment. Other dangers include the many powerful chemicals now found everywhere in our earth and water. And in this season of the 45th Earth Day, we're taking the opportunity to remember one of the most innovative environmental scientists of recent times, Theodora Kolber. It was Theo who first correlated the data suggesting that tiny doses of many common chemicals, such as plasticizers and pesticides, could mimic hormones in humans and wildlife. With effects that might include depressed sperm counts and a heightened incidence of the painful condition endometriosis. 
1994, Theo Colborn, then a senior scientist at the World Wildlife Fund, explained her ideas on living on Earth. I think we have flooded the environment with a large number of chemicals that look like or interfere with hormones, neurotransmitters, growth factors, and inhibiting substances. Dr. Colburn calls these chemicals endocrine disruptors. The endocrine system is the delicate network of glands which produce hormones, the powerful chemical messengers which regulate our most vital biological processes, including sexual development, immune response, and the way we react to stress. Natural hormones are intensely powerful, but quickly eliminated by our bodies. Synthetic chemicals, which act like hormones, on the other hand, are much weaker, but our bodies don't know how to get rid of them, and they build up, mostly in our fat. Dr. Colburn worries that the most important impact of these substances may not be on the people directly exposed to them, but on the next generation, on their offspring. In pregnant women, Dr. Colburn says, hormone-imitating chemicals can leach out of fat cells, cross through the placenta, and wreak havoc on the fetus at the most vulnerable stages of development. They look like hormones and they're capable of getting into the body and interfering with normal hormonal activity. And the messages, the normal messages that control normal growth. Many of the chemicals that Dr. Colburn suspects are endocrine disruptors are tested for their ability to cause cancer and birth defects, but they are not tested for what she says may be their less obvious but no less devastating impact. We have been focusing on cancer and mutations We've been sidetracked by that, and we've missed this other, really more insidious effect. If the immune system is affected, maybe they're not well all the time. If their nervous system is affected, maybe they're not as smart as they should be. Maybe they have problems with behavior. Maybe we're affecting their fertility. So that population may not be able to reproduce eventually. And these chemicals are all around us now, That's all right. the time. That's right. Steve, you're sitting there right now with at least 500 measurable chemicals in your body that were not there before 1940. And I think what's happening is that uh, you can't predict what these chemicals are going to do. Some of the substances that Dr. Colburn suspects are endocrine disruptors are heavy metals, cadmium, lead, and mercury. But most come from a class of chemicals called organochlorines. They're used in thousands of products from pesticides and plastics to pharmaceuticals. DDT and PCBs are organochlorines that were banned because scientists believe they cause cancer. But even that link is uncertain. In fact, so little is known about so many of these chemicals that critics charge Dr. Colburn's theory is just that, a theory, and nothing more. But after years of analyzing research from around the world, Dr. Colburn is convinced by what she's seen. There was a consistency to what I was finding. It's called what I call the weight of evidence approach. That's Theo Colburn speaking on Living on Earth back in 1994. Well, now the science of endocrine disruptors is well established, largely thanks to Theo's pioneering work and the many researchers she collaborated with, efforts that led, for example, to the banning of bisphenol A in baby bottles. Still, regulators have only just begun to address the risks of endocrine disruption. One of the very last papers Theo co-authored was a collaboration with a team led by Laura Vandenberg, now an environmental health scientist at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Laura joined us for a look back at Theo's scientific breakthroughs and what might lie ahead. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Laura. Thank you so much for having me again. 
Tell me, when did you first hear about Theo Colburn? I think like many young graduate students, I first learned about Theo and her work from her very popular book, Our Stolen Future. And that was early in my graduate career. And within probably two years of starting my PhD with Anna Soto at Tufts University, Anna, who was very close to Theo, had introduced us electronically so that I could start chatting with Theo about things that I thought were interesting and that she could help me with. And may I ask you, how did you feel as a woman scientist having Theo as a mentor in a way for you? I was extremely privileged to work with someone like Theo. I've always really admired people who are willing to, at some point in their life, say, you know, I want to do something different. That takes a lot of bravery. And Theo got her PhD in her 50s. That's not the traditional path. It's not been my path. And I I really looked up to her for that. But I also really looked up to her for not just getting that degree, but doing work in a field that was so and is so contentious and controversial. She really took a stand for the sake of planet Earth and human health at a time that maybe few other people were and few women were. Now, it's more than 20 years since Theo really put her ideas out there. How did these concepts look some 20 years later? At the time, the research was being proposed as a hypothesis, something that was still being tested, something that required more data to really convince even the practitioners in the field that something was going on. It was called the low-dose hypothesis, the idea that low levels of chemicals could affect the health of wildlife and humans. The data is here now. It took 20 years. It took a lot of scientists who contributed. And the evidence is pretty solid that these compounds can affect the health of humans, wildlife, creatures in the laboratory, cells in a dish. We've gone leaps and bounds from what was known in the 1990s when Theo started this work to where we are today. One of the things that Theo Colburn talked about was the influence that these hormone-mimicking chemicals would have on our reproductive health. What do we know now? There are still trends that are suggesting that reproductive diseases and conditions are increasing. Conditions like infertility, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, cancers of the reproductive tract, and breast cancer in humans. And when we go back and look at the knowledge that's been produced in labs with controlled animal studies, we can explain some of these increases in disease from those animals by exposing them under controlled conditions to endocrine disruptors. We can induce a lot of those reproductive diseases that we're seeing increase in human populations. So the connections are there. Can we prove today that any one of those diseases is caused by a single chemical of concern? No, we're not there yet. Is there very strong evidence that the environment is affecting reproduction? Absolutely. One of the concerns that Theo Colburn had was regarding our thinking, our brains, our neurological systems. She thought that these hormone mimickers might interrupt the transmission of impulses, that they would affect what are known as neurotransmitters. What do we know about that today? 
Theo was right on track with this idea. And in fact, neurotransmitters are just one part of what we've been finding with effects of endocrine disruptors. These chemicals are actually affecting the brain as it's being developed. The brain is a really complex organ where you could look at effects on the single cells, like the neurons. You could look at lower levels, like the neurotransmitters, or you could look at the whole brain anatomy. And maybe the more fascinating things about endocrine disruptors is that they can target all of these different levels of biology. Some of the more convincing data showing effects of endocrine disruptors on the brain focus on rodents and regions of the brain that are different in males and females. And Creatures that are exposed very early on in life to endocrine disruptors can have brains that don't match their genetic sex. Um, so males that have brains that look a little bit more like female brains and vice versa. So I think once again, Theo was right on track. And her idea was that the brain was going to be hypersensitive and that it would be very sensitive during early development. In fact, Theo had a quote you can't go back and rewire the brain. So if we alter the organization of the brain early on in life, oh boy, we could be in for some real trouble. As a practical matter, what has Theo Colburn's work meant in terms of various chemicals that we might regulate today? Well, one of the things that Theo helped others in the field to do was to identify just how many chemicals might have endocrine disrupting properties. She helped compile a list of either known endocrine disruptors or possible endocrine disruptors, and the list has more than a thousand chemicals on it. Theo stayed very active in understanding the latest science about a lot of different chemicals, including BPA, for example. Another thing that I think is worth pointing out is that just in the last few years, Theo was one of the scientists that was sounding the alarm about chemicals that are used in hydraulic fracturing or fracking. And she was pointing out just how many chemicals were being used for fracking and how little we knew about them. And Theo was very concerned that these chemicals could also have endocrine disrupting properties in addition to being just toxic. When Theo Colburn died in December of 2014, she was some 87 years old. So you're telling me that in her 80s, she was working on this. I'm telling you that I think two weeks before she passed, we were on the phone still talking about science. So this was a woman who cared very much about what she was doing, the scientists she was working with, and trying to save the world. I mean, this is a woman who was committed to saving the world. So Thea Colburn's ideas have brought you in this part of the scientific community to a certain point. What's next? What's over the horizon? If Theo were here today, what direction would she be pointing towards as the need for more research and understanding? I think one of the things that is really on the horizon, and once again, Theo saw it before a lot of us did, was the need to understand how these chemicals act in a mixture. For the most part, in the lab, we study one chemical at a time. I treat animals with chemical X, and I compare them to animals that weren't exposed. 
well, you and I are not exposed to chemical X. We're exposed to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And we really need to develop the right methods to look at chemical mixtures. Theo's work on chemicals found in fracking is really a question of mixtures. All of these chemicals used together in a slurry, what are they doing? How do you think history is going to look back at Theo Colburn's work in, say, another 20 years or more? I think people in my generation of science will look to Theo with awe. Knowing her when she was alive, what she could accomplish was incredible. But I think the broader lessons that go beyond science to what Theo's legacy will be will also be huge. This is a woman who gave a good part of her life to trying and improving the life of humans, the health of humans, and wildlife. She cared very much for the environment and for how we could protect ourselves from chemicals that we didn't realize when they were first produced could cause such harm. I think that her legacy will only grow from here. Laura Vandenberg is Assistant Professor of Environmental Health Science at the University of Massachusetts. Thanks so much for joining us for this Earth Day look back at the life of Theo Colburn. Thank you so much, and thank you for honoring her. Earth Day turns 45 years old on April 22nd, and for a look beyond the headlines back then, as well as today, we turn to Peter Dykstra of Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org, and thedailyclimate.org. He's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. What are the stories? Well, hi, Steve. For the 45th anniversary of Earth Day, let's take stock of a few things that are very different between 1970 and today, both good and bad. Okay, well, let's start with the good stuff, huh? Back around the time of the first Earth Day, it was still pretty much standard practice for any industrial facility, any sewage system, to dump directly into the air or into the most convenient waterway. Thanks to both laws and public attitudes, the air and water are demonstrably cleaner in the U.S. than they were in 1970. That's not to say there still aren't enormous challenges, but amidst all the gloom that tends to dominate environmental discussions, it's a very good thing and an accomplishment to be proud of. Also, we've been talking about this since 1970 and maybe even before, but it looks like wind and solar energy have finally arrived. 79,000 new jobs created in renewables last year. That's a lot of jobs and some really good news. And all right, what about the bad news? Well, something else it seems like we've been talking about for 45 years. The environmental movement still has an image problem, mostly white, wealthy, and whiny. I think some of this is undeserved, but some of it is. While those 79,000 wind and solar jobs were being created, the coal industry lost 50,000. And that didn't happen because of the alleged war on coal. It happened largely due to market forces. But it's still absurdly easy to use environmental concern as a job-killing, divisive issue in small-town America and in the media and especially in Congress. After 45 Earth Days, it seems we've still got some growing up to do. Indeed. Hey, what do you have for us next? Something really counterintuitive. One would think that top-level competitive swimmers are among the healthiest people around, but there's a catch. Uh, research from Canada's McMaster University reports that Olympic-level swimmers are also frequently asthma sufferers. Huh? So uh, what causes this? Is there a smoking gun? 
Yes, usually at the beginning of every race, but that's not important now. There's no absolute proof, but strong speculation that it's lung irritation from pool chemicals, particularly chlorine. Interestingly enough, the research shows that swimmers who spend hours of training each day with their nostrils at water level are more at risk than athletes in other water sports like diving or water polo. In high-level competition, this creates a new difficulty since chemical inhalers are normally outlawed in elite competition, and the swimmers need to get special permission to use them. But wait there's more okay let's say you're not a world-class competitive swimmer i think we can both say that agreed in 2006 the european respiratory journal published a study of widespread interest for those who admit to at some point in their lives having peed in the swimming pool but not me I totally believe you, Steve Kerwood. Me neither. The study said that chemicals in pee can react with pool chlorine and form chloramine compounds, similar to the building blocks in some banned chemical weapons. So if you pee in the pool, it's a war crime? Well, not quite. You'd need a whole lot of chlorine and a lot of human contributors as well. But the study said it's a potential cause of minor lung irritation for pool workers and those exposed to the mix for long hours. And I guess it's a concern for any of us who ever swam in a public pool. Hey, Peter, what did you bring to us from the history calendar this Earth Day? Well, appropriately, I've got another Earth Day link. The modern president responsible for many key environmental laws and the creation of the EPA died on Earth Day back in 1994, Richard Milhouse Nixon. He tends to be remembered for some other things, but Nixon signed legislation creating the EPA. And during his presidency, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, that's the one requiring environmental impact statements for big projects, and the outlawing of DDT all happened. But wasn't all of that more of a political strategy than it was Dick Nixon, the tree hugger? Absolutely. He saw the environment as a way to make nice with many of the same Americans who had been alienated by the Vietnam War. In private, but with the infamous Nixon tape recorder rolling during a meeting with U.S. auto executives, he said environmentalists wanted everyone, quote, to live like a bunch of damned animals. Also, Nixon actually vetoed the Clean Water Act, but back in those golden days when there was strong environmental sentiment on both sides of the aisle, Congress overrode that veto and the Clean Water Act became law. So even today, we reap the benefits of the Millhouse effect. Yikes. <laughs> Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Happy Earth Day, Peter. Talk to you soon. Happy Earth Day, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. At 5 o'clock on a May morning of 2014, we headed out to Great Meadows National Wildlife Refuge in Concord, Massachusetts, to meet up with David Sibley, author of The Sibley Guide to Birds, a wildly popular and widely used bird guide. These marshes, lakes, and woodlands are spring pit stops for migrating birds heading north and a home for local birds looking to find a mate. And as sunlight starts to flood the sky, the bird's chorus brings a smile to David Sibley's face. So who are we listening to here? Uh, we're hearing northern cardinal, blue-gray gnatcatcher, warbling vireo, red-winged blackbird, swamp sparrow, yellow warbler, common grackle, catbird, common yellowthroat, Canada Goose. Gee, I think that you probably just doubled my life list for around here. <laughs> um, I'm hearing a northern water thrush singing in the bushes right there. That loud chirping sound, descending in pitch. 
closer now. A northern water thrush. Let's yeah. look in your book. Where where are we to find the northern water thrush? Uh, it's one of the warblers, so it'll be a warbler section back here. Right here. Right here. You've added something that I didn't see before, which is in your other works, is a description of what the bird sounds like. Can you, you read that? Yep. Uh, song of loud, emphatic, clear, chirping notes generally falling in pitch and accelerating, loosely paired or tripled with little variation. Call a loud, hard squick, rising with strong K sound. Flight call a buzzy, high, slightly rising zip. Your descriptions are almost the way people describe uh, wine, you know, with a little bit of this flavor and a hint of that and all that. Yeah, we do. We, it's so difficult to describe in words what a bird sounds like. You end up using words like mellow and rich and liquid and sharp, and it does sound just like the <laughs> descriptions of taste. <laughs> if the words are used um, consistently and, and used repeatedly, you, you kind of get a sense of what each one means, and you'll learn that, yes, uh, thrushes tend to have a liquid sound, and orioles and robins, their voices have a rich sound. It's fun to try to come up with words to describe all these sounds. So, your your first book, really, so many folks see that as a, as a gold standard of a birding guide. So, why do another? As soon as the first book went to the printer back in, in 2000, I I started taking notes and gathering information about things I wanted to change or new things I had learned. I look at those paintings and think I could do that, this or that a little bit better or add, add details or um, add new illustrations to show different things. Well, let's take a step out into the meadow. All right. Let's head down this uh, path through the marsh here. Hearing a common yellow throat, yellow warbler, gray catbird, red winged blackbird singing. Up above us, there's a indigo bunting singing up in the maple right there. It's the bunting. That high pitched sound, and every note is repeated, every phrase is repeated. The indigo bunting is a migrant. They don't normally nest right here. So we can be confident that that bird probably just arrived last night. It probably flew up from the south last night, dropped in here sometime early this morning, and now it's kind of checking things out. It gets up to the top of the tree and sings a little bit to see if anybody answers. And it's kind of assessing the area to figure out if this is a, a good place to stay for the summer. And I think the answer is going to be no, it's too wet for indigo buntings. <laughs> so they don't nest here, so it, it'll move on. Maybe it's already moved on. I don't hear it anymore. This time of year in the spring, all the birds are singing. And it's so much easier to just walk through an area listening and hear what's around and it it's possible to identify 
every species, essentially every sound, can be identified. One of the things about bird songs is that they hear, their ears work a lot faster than ours. Their ears and their, their brain processing of sounds works a lot faster than we do. So they're hearing an incredible amount of information, more than we do. If you, you take a bird sound and slow it down to about a quarter speed, then you start to hear the kind of detail that they're hearing. So why is it that birds are, well, you know, singing the loudest in the morning? I think the song in the morning is mostly kind of a checking in with their neighbors. Male birds sing to kind of defend their territory, to mark the edges of their territory. So they'll circle around to perches at the edge of their territory and sing from those spots. And their neighbors, they'll recognize the sounds of their neighbors. They recognize each other. So the morning song is kind of a a, uh, just an announcement that I'm still here. Are you still there? Yes, okay. Territorial boundaries still still in force? Yes, okay. And what about the migrants? Migrants, it's, um, they might be singing to sort of test the area to see if, if they get a response, if there's a female nearby that might respond to the song. But mostly it's probably just sort of hormones. It probably kind of goes back to the, the old poetic thing about birdsong just being an outpouring of joy <laughs> and the, the uh, uncontrollable urge to sing with the, the dawn of the spring morn. And these migrants, they're, they're near their breeding grounds here. They're heading north. They're just about to enter this phase of life where they're, they'll find a mate. They'll um, set up a territory, raise young and they just can't control themselves. They sing at dawn. One of the things that certainly has changed about birding is our awareness that uh, the climate is shifting, and that means that birds are shifting. Um, how do you account for that when you do a habitat range in, in your books? In the 40-plus years since I've been birding, starting in Connecticut in the 1970s and uh, now in Massachusetts, I see really big changes in birds. There, some species have increased tremendously, like Canada goose, <laughs> wild turkey, red-bellied woodpecker. Um, some of those species are southern birds that are moving north, and, and some of that's probably due to climate change, but there are all kinds of other things going on in bird populations. And, and a lot of species have declined, but it's about equal numbers of sort of winners and losers in the last 40 years. So over that span of time, 40 years, the, the maps in the bird guide would have changed a lot for probably 10% of the species. 10% of the species are different places than 40 years ago. What accounts for that, do you think? Mostly it's changes in habitat. The big change here in the Northeast is that, well, 100 years ago, it was almost all farmland. There was very little forest. And 40 years ago, we were just coming out of that, and now the... A lot of farms have been left to grow up to forest, and all the suburbs that were built in the 50s and 60s with trees planted then, the trees are now 60 years old and big enough to support a lot of forest birds, the ones that can coexist with people like robins and blue jays and grackles and uh, wild turkey and 
even birds like pileated woodpecker. It was incredibly rare in Connecticut when I was a kid in the 70s, and now they're pretty widespread and found in the suburbs. Indeed, and hungry in the suburbs, too. Yes, <laughs> yes. Sometimes unpopular when they, when they look for food in someone's, uh, in the siding of your house, but they can do a lot of damage. So you're an ornithologist, you're a writer, and an artist, and you hand paint every one of these bird pictures in, in your guides yourself. Tell me about the process and, and why you do it. When I'm in the field, um, I'm watching birds um, studying shape and posture and doing pencil sketches. And then so I have years and years, thousands and thousands of pencil sketches from the field. When I'm back in the studio, I, I get all of my pencil sketches and I use photographs as reference to get all the details right. And I work on paintings in the studio. For me, and we're really lucky in this time now, and it's really in the last 15 years that photographs have become so numerous. There's so many photographers doing such good work and, and everything's available on the internet that for the work that I do, I can find hundreds of photographs of every species. Illustrators like Peterson had to use specimens for their reference material. Yeah, I guess Audubon famously shot everything he drew. Yeah, he did, and that was, I mean, he was traveling through the woods with nothing but a shotgun and his painting supplies. He didn't have binoculars, he didn't have cameras. Nobody had a camera. There weren't even books that he could carry along with him to help him identify the birds. It was just, just him and his paintings. A pair of mute swans flying by. Not so mute. <laughs> yeah, that sound is their, their wings. They do make vocal sounds also. They're not entirely mute, but that sound is produced by their wing feathers, just uh, sort of humming through the air with each wing stroke. So I have to ask you, what got you hooked on birding? Uh, I have always been interested in birding. My father's an ornithologist, so I'm sure that had something to do with it. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but yeah, it was just, um, birding was part of what our family did. Uh, I just really enjoyed it, the birding and the, and I was always drawing birds also. So when did you realize that, well, this would be, this would be the work part of your life? You know, I, I, as a young teenager in Connecticut, I was going out on the weekends with people from the New Haven Bird Club um, and watching birds, identifying birds, learning about them. People were very supportive of my interest in birds and my drawing, very encouraging. And Roger Torrey Peterson, who had illustrated the, the most popular field guide at the time, lived about 20 miles away. I met him a few times when I was a kid and um, to have him flip through a few pages of my sketchbook and look at it and say, oh, these are very nice, keep it up. And I think I grew up with the idea that writing a field guide was a perfectly viable career choice. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in birds. Well, that's a better way to grow up birding than being dragged out at five in the morning to stand in the cold. <laughs> we did plenty of that too. <laughs> There's something about birding which, even if you don't want to, it kind of grabs you. Yeah, and it's and the popularity of birding has increased so.
so much in the last 40 years. When I started out in the 70s, it was rare to see another bird watcher. And uh, now it's, uh, you go to a place like Great Meadows here, the parking lot at times will be filled with cars of bird watchers. Um, but I think it's um, just a desire to connect with nature. And bird watching is just a way you know, it's an excuse to set the alarm for 4.30 in the morning and go out, even <laughs> even if it's raining or windy, and get outdoors and just uh, experience that. And it's not so much about the birds. The birds are the, they're kind of the, the hook, the, the pull that gets us out there. But to a bird watcher, it's as much just the experience of being outdoors and feeling the change in weather and, and seeing the seasons change and being aware of those patterns. Um, I think that's the real draw. David Sibley, thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. What a great morning. David Sibley's new book is called The Sibley Guide to Birds, Second Edition. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Allison Lirish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening, and happy Earth Day. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, Makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com. PRI Public Radio International.